The Gist is sponsored by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Squarespace features an easy-to-use interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Right now, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, June 5th, 2015. From Slate Hits the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. I am so psyched for the Entourage movie. Watching it? No. <laughs> Watching it? No. Reading the horrible reviews and seeing it fail at the box office. If it doesn't work out, we can always move back to Queens. I don't want to go back to Queens, bro. I like the weather out here too much. This is... This is Entourage, the TV show. Will Turtle learn to drive a stick shift? That there, that's a three-episode arc. So there's a great review of this by A.O. Scott in the New York Times. And before I read A.O. Scott's, I want to apprise you of the fact that David Edelstein, like a week earlier, had a great, terrible review of Pitch Perfect 2. Here's what David Edelstein said. In fact, let's judge these bad reviews against each other. Edelstein writes, It's actually difficult to write a review of Pitch Perfect 2. First, you have to think up and reject a bunch of adjectives and nouns to pair with Aka, as in, it's Aka lousy, or Aka piece of shit. He wrote that. They wrote that in the magazine. He says, I'm guessing the writer, Kay Cannon, thought hard about whether to write the script, but the offer was for more money than she or anyone in her family had made in their entire lives put together. I'm also guessing Anna Kendrick didn't want to come back. I've never seen her so flat out bad. Anna, I still adore you, but you should have tried to make it work. I doubt you'd have succeeded, but I'd have lit you a special memorial candle and saluted. I don't want to be writing this goddamn review either, and I'm not getting paid Hollywood sequel money. So that's good. That's withering. Now let's compare it to A.O. Scott. By the time it reached the end of its HBO run in 2011, Entourage had grown staler than last night's Axe Body Spray. The passing of a few more years has not improved the aroma. Watching the movie is like finding an ancient issue of a second-tier lad magazine, not even Maxim, but loaded or nuts in a friend's guest bathroom. You wonder how it got there. You wonder how you got there. In my case, it was the same way the people on screen got there because someone paid me. Why anyone would run the transaction in reverse is puzzling enough to be worth pondering. I mean, that is a good withering review. That is the kind of thing, (laughs) wondering why someone would watch the movie if they were not being paid, that you hold on to and you bring out for the wild boar that will not be felled by any old barb. So who won? Who had the more withering review? The answer is clear. It's A.O. Scott. Why? Because Entourage, and this is from a service that projects box office, Entourage is expected to pull in between 14 and $17 million over its five-day opening. That is not very good. It will be eclipsed by Spy. It didn't cost a lot, but it's just not going to make a lot. And Pitch Perfect has already made over $150 million. As Edelstein noted at the end, oh Lord, strap in, Pitch Perfect 3 is on its way. On the show today, speaking of singing, not a cappella, but with guitar, we are going to be joined on the show by an up-and-coming singer-songwriter and a, I'll say, arrived singer-songwriter. And the issue isn't singing, it's what to say in between the songs. Yes, we're assigning our young singer-songwriter a banter mentor. And in the spiel, I go Duggar. But first, I gotta tune this guitar. Oh, I can't believe I gotta say something.
This, what you are hearing, is singer-songwriter Sharon Van Etten. The song is called Just Like Blood. It's from the new EP, I Don't Want to Let You Down. And, sh- and sorry, Sharon Van Etten fans, that's the last we'll hear from her singing. But she's sitting next to me. Hello, Sharon. Hiya. How you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Let's hear a little of an up-and-coming artist, young kid, new on the block. His name's Dylan Condor. His band is Condor. Here's a song called Hostage. I know what you used to, but I can't refuse you. You can't will this heart of mine to break. And Condor's Dylan Condor is here, too, next to me, next to Sharon. Hello, Dylan. Hey. And fans of the Condor, I apologize to you too. We're not going to hear the dude sing at all. In fact, we're not here for the singing portion of musicality. We're here for the talking portion. Dylan, you got in touch with me with a with an interesting request, as I remember. Tell tell the audience what well, you reached out in asking. I was listening to one of your spiels. I forget which one. Uh, and it occurred to me that I'd had a few shows in a row where I came off stage and thought the music went great and the banter went terribly. Bad banter. Bad banter. And uh, I noted that your elocution style is very snappy and quick. So I think I tweeted something at you like, you inspire me to improve my banter. Yes. And because I am an egoist, <laughs> immediately I said to myself, I'm going to I'm gonna Cyrano de Bergerac the kid. He'll, <laughs> he'll have a little thing in his ear, maybe Bluetooth technology, and I'll tell him what to say. But then I said... Who am I to do it? How much stage banter have I done? Forget me. Let's pull in what I call a bantor mentor, and that's you, Sharon. <laughs> I have heard that you're excellent at the bantor. I I have been working on it for a little while, but you can always have a miss. You yeah. Know? <laughs> but I think when you get when one gets into music, it would seem to me one of the last things that one thinks of. It's like, all right, I'm gonna write my songs, I'm gonna play my instrument, I'm gonna be good at that, I'm gonna even work on my live performance, and then it's like holy shit, what about the stuff I say in between or beforehand? It seems like the last thing you ever even think of. It can be pretty intense when you're tuning guitar and then it's just the silence on stage and the, the people looking at you to say something really clever. Yeah, the multitasking. <laughs> yeah. And there's a desire to be clever but also authentic. I don't want to sound like I wrote shtick. Right. You know? Yeah. But Sharon, if we charted your career, if we saw tapes of you early on, were you less good at stage banter than your fans tell me you are? I was terrible. Okay. You know, I mean, it started off like, you know, I had severe social anxiety moving to New York, and I started playing solo classical guitar in front of bar crowds. And it <laughs> is, that is like a sitcom waiting to happen anyway, you know. But right. I just, I had a haircut where I purposely, my hair was in my face, and I just got a little whiskey drunk and would play. And every now and then I would yell at people. But then, you know, I would say one or two things that, I felt like my music summed it up to see what people thought because I really at the time thought my goal was to make people cry. And so I would tell I'm going to make you cry. I want to make you cry. But that was all I would ever be able to say. (laughs) (laughs) But then it started, I played at a place called Zebulon a lot, RIP in Brooklyn, which was one of my favorite places. And they had a very intimate crowd and half of the room used to be with my friends and my families. And you could actually talk to people. And I felt like that's where I started learning how to engage people and Mm. have it feel more of a conversation where you're all on the same level as opposed to you're the performer and they're the audience. It's a room full of people that want to know you if they don't know you. That seems also, I would say, to fit in with your style, right? If you're uh, glam rocking out at an arena, you can't do that. But also you wouldn't want to do that. 
Right, because you have this image, yeah. but, you know, that's one thing I'm still learning how to be as an adult as myself, and letting people know who I am is that is all part of it to me. So, Dylan, how, I know you want to get better, but have you lit upon any strategies? Do you pre-write? Do you think about a, a patter about what a song means to you that you try to say every time? Uh, the last gig, I... I thought of a few things that would be easy to be off the cuff with while tuning. Okay, here's um, the thing. If you pre-think about things that are easy to be off the cuff with, that's not being off the cuff. Right. Yeah. To simulate off okay, the cuff Okay, right, right, yeah, yeah. But as far as talking about what the songs mean to me, Sharon, do you find that really like a tough nut to crack? I'm still figuring it out because some people love it and some people are like, let's talk more rock, which, you right. know, that gets really annoying. But sometimes people really want to know. And that, again, it's knowing your audience because I feel like sure. that changes every night. And it takes me probably until mid-set to really get their energy. And uh -huh. then you can see, well, do I, am I serious or do I start joking? And I think there's two different kinds of banter, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so will one show be like mostly jokey banter? How do you decide what the mood is? Well, what you're getting back from people, you know, sometimes they, you know, they're seated and, and, you know, sometimes it's an older audience. Sometimes it's kids. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's at a bar and people are drunk and rowdy. And how do you tame that? I mm -hmm. mean, it really depends. Yeah. I think I have a leg up that 60% uh, of my crowds are still my Facebook friends. So okay. the crowd work thing would be pretty easy mm -hmm. as a way to connect with the audience since well, I'm already connected to a lot of them. Because you were just saying you had a show that you felt like it was your worst banter yet or something. Uh, How, tell me again. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. The, the time that I tweeted at Mike was after a particularly bad show and I actually... Uh, sent them some clips uh, masochistically. All right, let's play a clip. Let's diagnose it, banter mentor. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of the better arrangements um, of one of my songs that we have. So naturally, I was like, well, let's just do a different arrangement on this gig. <laughs> I'm, I'm a malcontent. <laughs> I don't, I don't, if something's good, I'm like, okay, how can I fuck with this now? in all areas of my life, oversharing. Like, there, there, there was a gem, there was a, a germ in there that if you had been succinct and gotten out and been a little more self-confident, they'd have gone with you. Mm. But maybe you felt that the hole you were digging was a little d bigger than it was. What do you think, Sharon? Yeah, I think that's a song that you're going to be able to learn how to talk about better mm -hmm. as you go. I mean, I think what they were responding to was your self-deprecation, which also humanizes you, which I think is a good thing. Mm. And that's maybe why they ended up responding like that. It's quite possible I overdo the self-deprecation. It's kind of a default. <laughs> Even that just now was a self-deprecating remark, wasn't it? Well, it could be terse over length, you know? If you go in saying, I don't know, might this work? I'm going to say two sentences max about every song. Would that be at least for, you know, the first time where you try to, you know, up your banter game? Might that be a good exercise? Definitely. Yeah. Sure. If you get right to the point and it helps you formulate your own thoughts on it. Sure. And that could be something I preconceive because it would not take away from the authenticity. So let's talk about that song that you were leading up to. What song was it? 
Uh, it was a song of mine called Fool. Uh, we typically do it uh, very rock-ish. Yeah. Um, and this time I arranged it sort of as chamber music with some woodwinds and stuff. And I was, I think I was a little bit nervous about how that arrangement would come off. You can express your nervousness as excitement, you mm-hmm. know, but it can Go be ahead. like a nervous excitement and just say, this is new and I'm mm-hmm. trying it for you. We wanted to do something special today. Who knows? Yeah. What's going to happen? Or wait, tell me the name of the song again. Uh, Fool. Okay. So uh, I don't know if you guys know the song Fool. You said 60% of your fa- uh, audience, your Facebook friend. Yeah. Woo, we know Fool. All right. Work with <laughs> me here. This is going to be a risk, but we're all part of it together. Something like that. Right? That's the good. audience has stakes. You can say, you you think you may have heard this song before. This is the new version of it. Uh, you tell me after the song if you recognize it or not. Engage in that mm-hmm. way, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? that is good. All right, let's hear another clip and let's uh, let's tear Condor a new one. <laughs> they only get worse from here, I think. Oh, good, that was nice. the high point. Oh, right, this is one of mine. Uh, Boss Simon's cool, but you know, I wrote this. <laughs> Fuck Paul Simon. He isn't here, is he? That'd be both mortifying and like still kind of like awesome and worth it, worth that I just put my foot in my mouth, because he'd still like be here hearing me play, so. So I suppose some off-limits things like telling your musical heroes to fuck off mid-set would probably be like a good ground rule, right? I, I don't know. Sharon, have you ever told anyone to fuck off? Totally, yeah. yeah. And then I put my drink down. Uh-huh. And then I looked to my ba- my my uh, my guitar player Doug to save me a little bit. I'm like, "Hey, you guys, did you just say something? <laughs> did you call?" Uh, it's good to look to them sometimes. You know, it helps to not feel like you're the only one up there responsible for it. Too. Sure, I think maybe there's a desire to be irreverent in yeah. a way that can get a rise out of the crowd it's if I want the energy roll, to yeah. come up. But uh, again, I think. Insulting my musical heroes is not a good go-to, probably. Well, should he prescript? I I don't know. I have I have emergencies. If it's really quiet, I hear somebody's phone ring. I'll say, "If that's my mom, tell her I'm not here." Nice, nice. <laughs> or if somebody sneezes, I'll say, "Bless you," or "Need a tissue" or something. Uh-huh. You know, just like things that happen all the time, and sure. to acknowledge them if you're tuning or just something's weird. The interesting thing, Sharon, that you were saying is like you started out, and in as in Dylan's situation, people who kind of know you, and so you were talking to them. I think that's a technique you could use. Mm-hmm. And were you talking to them? Joel, my producer here, was saying that he saw a show and you were literally having a conversation with your mom. I think my mom's here at one point. And <laughs> yes. then you would say things that people got on your side because your mom was there. <laughs> so like, you could talk about a family member or a friend, Dylan, who's mm-hmm. there. That could be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like, you know, when you're standing there, too, you usually notice some people up front, whether you know them or they have a, a personality to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have a few people that they're like, OK, they're going to be easy to talk to. Sure. You know, and that that could start, it could backfire, mm-hmm. but it could be the beginning of having some kind of connection. That strikes me as a good while tuning emergency move uh, to beat that awkward silence. Maybe we're missing the big elephant in the room. Maybe you need to tune your guitar less. Uh-huh. <laughs> How often does it come out of tune? You know, I, I get kind of anal retentive. I uh, for. Uh, most of my career, I've been a side man. I've yeah. been everybody else's guitarist. So I'm very used to being meticulous and, and the sort of triage of where to split my mental energy. It's it's taken me a long time to let the guitar 
fall a little by the wayside so I can think about being a front man. How often will you two retune your guitar during a show? Well, it depends. We we still we try to get the set in an order where I don't have to put the capo on sure. so much because that makes it go out of tune way more. So mm. usually the first three songs, and this again, this is my bandmate Doug Keith is a great coach, but he's like, first three songs, let's just get them out of the way, get comfortable, get the crowd warmed up. Mm-hmm. Don't do anything that you you have to tune right away because mm-hmm. that you lose your momentum that way. Very right. first song, will you say something to precede it, or will you just break right into the song? I've been trying not to, and it's helped actually. Trying not to say yeah. anything. Yeah. So maybe about it, like like second or third song, depending on how it goes, then that's when you can say thanks for being here, blah blah blah. This is, and then you can introduce the next song and give yourself a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, or even like if you have to tune, then figure out a song where the rest of the va- the band starts without you. Oh sure. And then you can tune if you're just waiting for a minute, so you don't have to talk. Sure. Maybe there's also a story about a, a nugget about a detail of how or why you wrote the song. Like one, not the whole story, but one detail or nugget. You ever do that? I've done that. I've done, you know, what it was like in the studio, how it's changed live. Oh, that's or... cool. People will love that. Yeah. Yeah, mm. you yeah. know, something that again makes them feel special. Uh-huh. For like for being there You're and sharing. Why, yeah. why they would come to a show as opposed to listening to your record. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Um I'm not going to introduce this one as y'all probably know it. I'm going to just quickly say all the shit. Um, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash thebandcondor. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Dylan Condor. Dylan spelled the Matt Dylan Way Condor with a K. Uh, I don't know. How, fucking, how great's this band, right? Thank you all for coming. Uh, we're going to take a break from live shows and make an album, so I'll, you'll surely, I'll bother the shit out of you on Facebook and whatnot about it. And pre-order and help me fund it and whatever. All right. Um, cool. <laughs> Man, your stage banter is like a David Foster Wallace novel. I mean, it's got notations and it's got footnotes and there's the meta conversation going on. <laughs> I'm a big DFW fan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So, uh, do you do that? You, you got to give a plug to social media. Oh yeah, you've got to a little bit. But I make I I make a joke about it, saying, "Let's see how many you take it. You know, take as many photos as you can during this song and see how many, how many posts we can get. Oh, just to get it out of their systems or right. So you're half serious. I'm half serious. Right. Yeah. That's that's clever. I mean, the the thing about the self promotion thing is, I I started this band. Because the the hired gun freelance guitar sideman thing has been, uh, you know, I've been lucky that that's been a source of of a career for me. So this has been just a labor of love to see if my songs work, to connect more to music in general. Obviously, I'd like to reach more people, but I'm not in much of a hurry. I don't know if that's a thing to say on the radio. <laughs> well, no, it's a hard, but it's a hard thing to do. Whatever you really want from it, you mm-hmm. know, just to ask people for. Right, I I still money feel support. pretty bashful about that. Yeah, but you're you're creating something that people obviously are, appreciate, mm-hmm. and and you're creating it, and you want to make an album because you want to share it with them mm-hmm. in a different way mm-hmm. that they can hold on to. And that's something they'd be excited about. 
Mm-hmm. So it, if they don't know about it, how like if you can't don't talk about it, they won't know about it. Obviously, things I don't need to tell you. And yet, <laughs> um, you, you, it seems you do need to tell me this stuff. But just remember, these are people who are in a room. The commitment of you know taking time out of their day and going to a room and paying the money and watching for hours is so much less of a commitment than following someone on Facebook uh-huh, or even sure. listening online. So if any audience would be receptive to that, it's literally the audience there in front of you. I don't think I lack confidence in the material. Yeah. Um, it's uh, more confidence in whether I can get people on board with how much I like the material. Yeah. If that makes sense. You are worthy, though. Oh, well, thank you, Sharon. And everyone has their own audience, and it's he's right. It's right there in front of you. And it is weird to ask, but you'll get over that because people want to figure out how to help you. Oh, well, that's that's very encouraging. Thank you for that. Okay. Dylan Condor will be performing at the Bowery Electric Main Room, opening for Laura Cantrell on July 12th at 7 p.m. Sharon Etten will be performing at the sold-out Governor's Ball Music Festival. She goes on Saturday. Then she'll be heading out to South America on a tour. Tickets are still available in Buenos Aires. This has been really fun, guys. Dylan Condor, Sharon Van Etten, thank you so much. And thank you for mentoring Sharon. Thank you for wanting me to. (laughs) I hope you got something out of it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I have an idea for a website, and it's this. I take that other website that's out there we've all seen that says, Child stars, you won't believe what they look like today. And instead of making people click through every single child star, it's just one page, and it says this. Yes, you will, because humans age. Now, this is a simple web page, but, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of ways you could take this. Maybe my idea will be so popular that I'm going to want to you know, sell things off of it. Maybe that's a shirt. I think what I've just described is a shirt. So what do I do? I'll tell you what I do. I go to Squarespace. Because building a website with Squarespace is really quite easy. Even if you don't know code. In fact, if you do know code, that just might get in the way. Put your knowledge of code to the side. Just give yourself over to the intuitive and easy-to-use tools. Squarespace, I should also note, is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Squarespace starts at $8 a month, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. And I'm speaking to you, Haley Joel. And I'm speaking to you, Alexandra Joel. And I'm speaking to you, Mara Wilson. And I'm speaking to you, kid who played Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. And I'm speaking to all you child stars when I say Squarespace. Build it, beautiful. And now the spiel, 19 and curdling. So I've avoided the latest Duggar-based revelation without too much effort. For years, Duggar-based revelations buzzed around in the back of my mind like whatever song was topping the country charts or the weather in Cupertino, California, like pre-programmed in your phone, but you always swipe away as soon as you see it. And just like the latest revelation about Fast and the Furious or the latest congressional vote to repeal Obamacare, the latest Duggar revelation, it's always the same revelation. Oh, there is another one. Great. Slowed only by the fact that the human gestation period is a pescally long 40 weeks, or as the Duggars call it, one season, these Duggars are a one-family population bomb of sunshine and sanctimony. And of course I don't care! 
TLC was cleverly, if cynically, positioning them as a freak show to members of the audience who wanted that, but also not outright insulting the Duggars like Bravo does with its reality stars, the stars it so clearly loathes. But even if it was insulting, there would be no stopping these deluded time-warped narcissists so addicted to the forum in order to spread the Lord's words via the twin tubes of coaxial cable and the birth canal. I do not care. They didn't care that I didn't care. We all went on our way. Them more than me, just by sheer headcount. Well, now I have been forced to care. They've become news, serious news, something to ponder, to contemplate, to question. Attention, I have been told. Attention must be paid. Megyn Kelly got 3.1 million viewers to pay attention on Wednesday night on her Fox program. Here she is setting the scene. The show would focus on the Duggars' ever-expanding family, their devout faith, traditional values, and strict courting rules that include chaperones, no kissing before marriage, and no hand-holding before an engagement. Okay, there are what, four or five lies there? The phrase traditional values is usually inaccurate. Here it's obscene. But the entire Duggar controversy, if you haven't been following, is that their son, Josh, admits to having molested very young girls back when he was a minor. I, coming into this, I didn't know the extent of what that meant. It could mean a lot of things. Then I watched this special, and I came to learn that it meant Josh, while a minor touched or did something to a babysitter that was not really gotten into, but also touched his younger sister's bodies while they were sleeping. Megyn Kelly was criticized for the interview. I think she did okay. I mean, given that her Fox audience doesn't regurgitate a bit when you use the phrase traditional values to apply to whatever covenant the Duggars think they're living. You have to judge Megan on that curve. I personally couldn't have done this interview. I couldn't have conducted it. And it's because I think the entire enterprise is indecent. I don't know which is more indicative of poor judgment, all those kids or all that TV exposure. With this fact, they knew that their son had done this. And with this in your past, you invite cameras into your home to basically guarantee that one day your family will be horribly shamed. That is highly dysfunctional. And everything the Duggars say or said in that interview in an attempt to be appealing, I found repelling. Like their insistence on talking about this crime in the context of knowing something or someone's heart. It was more of his heart, his intent. And this man really reached his heart. You have a safe place to share your heart. Your hearts were, were safe. But basically what I wanted was for everyone involved to just have privacy, even if they don't want it. I don't think molestation should be shamed or swept under the rug. But what do we really have here? Okay, first to analyze this question, let's take away, let's strip away the two things that are very distinctive to the Duggars, their dual embrace of notoriety and procreation. What you really have is a sad story, a sad matter, that should be mediated by the family and perhaps the Department of Child Services and few outsiders. A teenage boy touching his sisters, that is extremely disturbing, that should be cause for deep concern. It's sad, and I think it calls out for discretion. The family should handle it in a space far away from Sarah Palin's Facebook page. 
And of course, this family handled it wrong. That's what Duggars do. But scoring points off them, even points about how horrible the Duggars are, it's a losing game. Now, I know the father is an elected official, and I know that Josh is a member of the Family Research Council, and it's really tempting to use that to level a charge of hypocrisy. Okay, so level that charge. But there is a glee in the Duggars' comeuppance. It has been turned into fodder for ratings or debate or a teachable moment. I think the Duggars have failed. There are many, many offspring in many, many ways. But I also think that there's little to be gained from whatever some national, so-called national conversation this episode engenders. I hear there's a faction of conservative Christians who think the Duggars are still heroes or something. In my world, I see them pilloried as proponents of anti-gay dogma. Well, of course they are. But using them and their sad, dysfunctional story to score points about anything other than the hideous cruelties of reality TV, that's just my opinion that's just taking the bait. Remember, the Duggars and their network patrons want two things, more attention and more kids. Now, I can only reach the valve that controls one of those things, and I'm turning it off. That's it for today's show. I'll do the credits quickly because I want to get to an important announcement. Andrea Salenzi is the producer, Joel Meyer is the managing producer, and Andy Bowers is the executive producer. Now, I want to announce something, and this is about the offer I made yesterday to try to get more people to follow our Twitter feed, Slate Gist. We said we'd follow you back, and we did. For everyone who followed from the time of that announcement to this, sorry for your listening time delay, but it's Thursday to Friday. It was a 24-hour or so period. We followed everyone back. Now... It has been raised by our original followers who numbered 4,000 or so. What about us? Don't you love us? Aren't we special? Don't I get a follow? Can I unfollow you, then follow you again and earn a follow back? Yes, but I would question the word earn. And here's what I want to say to you. Not all the 4,000 followers who followed us first, but those who have been raising these points. It is important that you never think that you aren't good enough. It's just that Andrea and I... We have a lot of love in our hearts, and I know you do too, and we want to share our love with your new sibling followers. Now, I think it might be a good idea for you to help decorate our new followers' room. Maybe one night we could have a special night between you and I, and we could plan out the sorts of tweets and links that the new followers would enjoy. Won't that be fun? And you're going to have an important role with your new brother or sister followers. You could follow them too, and I'm sure they're going to want to follow you back. Look, maybe not at first. They might be overwhelmed by all the attention, but soon I bet you could tweet them, and you'll be able to DM them. You could DM them for years to come, even after Andrea and I are dead. Look, let's not overdo it. Newly adopted followers can feel overwhelmed by the sudden largesse. They might withdraw further, and that could bewilder you. I understand, as our bio—I mean, our original followers. But I want to emphasize that new followers, they're a permanent member of our family. They're not going away. They're not going to be replaced. And to the new followers, I know you might be saying, I wish I could have been in the first 4,000. I understand that. That's okay but you are special and you are loved. And to all our followers on the Twitter feed, thanks for listening. 
Hi, I'm Jason Lincolns, host of So That Happened, a HuffPost podcast about the things that have happened in politics this week. This time out, we're talking about the Patriot Act and NSA reform. Who's hemming and hawing? Who's yelling? Who's taking credit? And what does it all mean for you? You can listen to our show each week at iTunes.com slash Panoply or by searching So That Happened on iTunes or Stitcher.